You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. And I think curiosity is sort of this prerequisite to doing something that's memorable. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Early on in my tenure with the show, I came across a quote from the advertising legend Leo Burnett, who wrote, Curiosity about life in all its aspects, I think, is still the secret of great creative people. I've spoken with all sorts of people, many of them indisputably creative, most of them not necessarily starting out thinking of themselves as curiosity experts in one way or another, and they all agree with Burnett's observation. But a lot of what this show has taught me is that we are sometimes more curious than we know, and certainly capable of even more curiosity than we have realized. For a long time, inspired at least in part by Leo Burnett, not to mention all the articles I've read in marketing, PR, communications that extol its many virtues, I've thought I should find someone in that field to talk to me about curiosity. So put a pin in that. I've long been looking for someone in marketing with whom to have a curiosity conversation. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how incurious we all seem, how utterly unwilling and hence increasingly unable to change our minds or see things from a perspective other than our own. And I count myself in here. I may be no less rigid than the next person, but I'm conscious of it. I would even say self-conscious of it. And I wonder, what would it take for me to change my mind? Am I even remotely persuadable? And there's the second pin. And could I connect those dots? Is there a conversation to be had that taps the insights of marketing and a challenge to incuriosity? Well, yes. Yes, there is. And thanks to a mutual friend and fan who made the curiosity connection and a generous introduction, that someone is joining me by phone today. Rohit Bhargava is a trend curator and marketing expert dedicated to bringing more humanity back to business. He's the Wall Street Journal best-selling author of six books on topics as wide-ranging as the future of business and consumers, how to build a trustworthy brand, and why real leaders never eat cauliflower. His signature book, Non-Obvious, has helped inspire over one million readers to think differently. And its 10th and final iteration, Non-Obvious Megatrends, How to See What Others Miss and to Predict the Future, is just out. I've been devouring it, and I think you'll see why. Outside of his speaking and consulting, Rowett is also an adjunct professor of marketing and storytelling at Georgetown University and writes a monthly column for GQ magazine in Brazil. His insights have been featured on NPR, Fast Company, CNN, and the Harvard Business Review, and I'm delighted to have him join us here on Radio Arlington. Rohit believes in listening before talking, and his business card describes him as a nice guy. So who could resist? Welcome, Rohit. 
Thank you. It's great to be talking with you, Lynn. Well, congratulations on the release of the book, and thank you for joining us in this busy time for you. Oh, you're so welcome. I mean, this is the uh, this is the fun part, as as you know, after spending months and months researching and writing to finally be out and, and talking about it. I mean, this is uh, this is what I love. Yeah, yeah. This is your baby out to see the world. So there are so many places that we could start this conversation, but I want to go right to the the curiosity connection. You talk about the five mindsets of non-obvious thinkers, one of which, of course, is to be curious. Can we talk about those five and how you see them in what you do with the trends? Yeah, let's, I mean, let's focus on curiosity. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things that I that I uncovered as I, as I did the research for the book, and, and actually a story I tell in the book goes way backwards in history, more than a thousand years to a time when there was a, a explorer named Jarni Herjolfsson, uh, which I think I might be getting right, but <laughs> may be pronouncing incorrectly. Uh, obviously, I can't ask him. But he was an explorer, and he took off on a voyage from Norway and discovered by accident North America. And yet we don't know this name. Yet we don't know the name. Yeah. The reason why is because he never got down to explore. He actually returned to Norway, and years later he told this story to a friend of his named Leif Erikson was inspired by the adventure and went and took that journey and actually did land. And, you know, I'm, I think discovered is the wrong word. I mean, there were people there before, so it's not like they discovered it. But they were the first Europeans to land there. And there's one guy who's forgotten by history and one guy who's remembered. Right. And, you know, to me, like the, the lesson in that story wasn't so much that we're trying to, on a daily basis, do something that will be remembered by history a thousand years later. But what if we did? You know, what if we could? And I think curiosity in that case, in that story, is sort of this prerequisite to doing something that's memorable, to creating like a legacy of something that people will remember um, instead of just being able to pass by and not engage your curiosity. So it's not just a mindset for non-obvious thinkers. I mean, it's a mindset for um, people who are going to make an impact and people who will make a difference. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's story after story of exactly the same thing. You know, I mean, Howard Schultz, the founder of, of Starbucks, uh, famously came up with that idea for creating what he called the third place. So not home, not work, the third place, because he went to a conference in Milan and he happened to be skipping the conference for a little bit and walking down the street and he saw all these cafes and that's what inspired him. You know, he was curious. He walked around uh, and that's where the idea came from. So like we have so many stories in, in like business history right? or just plain history that talk about the value of this. We do. And what's interesting about both of those stories is they also point to some of the other mindsets that you describe for non-obvious thinkers, like being observant, you know, paying attention to the cafes of Milan, or being fickle, allowing yourself to be distracted or to move on, go discover something else. And maybe thoughtful to sort of stop and think about, well, what's the implication of what I've just seen? Yeah, yeah. And and uh, the last one is, is be elegant, right? Which is like, say things in, in considered ways. Right. Words that you use and use them intentionally. So I'll just use this as an opportunity to say that one of the things that I have appreciated in reading your book is how evident the mindsets are in your writing as well. 
you know, you're an elegant writer. It's really an engaging read. And you're thoughtful and you're you're fickle. I mean, you sort of bounce around, right? You get distracted by other things. You pull all this cool stuff in. Yeah, that's an interesting one, like being fickle, because when I when you say that, a lot of people have a negative reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, mm-hmm. fickle that means you can't focus on anything. You have ADHD, like always bouncing around from one thing to another, and you're doing the thing that we tell our kids not to do, right? We're like, just focus, just get this thing done, like <laughs> right. we're used to saying as parents. But I think the benefit of being fickle is that you don't dwell on something. Uh-huh. And you don't spend too much time trying to figure it out in the moment. And if you've ever had that moment where you just had this problem and you were trying to figure it out and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying, or like you lost something, right, in your house, like you can't remember where you put it and you're trying, 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 can't find it. And then you finally go away and you do something else. And then what happens, right? You remember it. You find it. Yeah. And a lot of times that happens like because you went and took a shower and people think, oh, I have my best ideas in the shower. Yeah, but it's not about the shower. It's about the fact that you gave your mind yeah. a break, like you actually moved on to something else. And therefore, because like your mind is still working on it in the background, right? Because that's how our minds work. But we don't appreciate that. And so we overspend time and, and stress about this thing that we just can't figure out. And we spend too much time doing ineffective things. Right, right. And with each of your mindsets, you actually provide some things that people could do to kind of build those practices. I mean, I I curate curiosity practices, right? And what you've done is curate practices in each of these mindset approaches that sort of give people license to get distracted, to do some different things. And I love the ones that you have for be curious about consuming brainful media, which is a term I love, read unfamiliar magazines and ask questions constantly. But I want to go to the first one because I think this is actually something we could all use is kind of focusing on consuming brainful media. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that a lot of times what the way we think of media and our media diet is all indulgence and no uh, Uh health. So we do our work, we live our lives, we run around to soccer practice, and we do all the stuff we do. And finally, when we sit down, we're like, okay, I just want to watch a rerun of The Office. You know, I just want to, like, you know, unwind and watch, like, you know, something that I've watched over and over again, or like a stupid comedy movie or something like that. And that's fine. Like, I'm not telling people not to do that, right? But I think that there's this opportunity that we often miss to blend entertainment and learning. Mm. And some of the best things that I've watched, some of the most interesting things I've seen have been like really engaging documentaries. But if it, when people think about that, like it feels like I'm assigning them homework. Oh, um, yeah. but, it, but, but a good one is, is like watching a movie. Uh-huh. Uh, but we have to just choose to do that instead of watching that rerun over and over. And so what I talk about when I say consume brainful media is like, you know, make some choices to, to inject a little bit of that, that thinking into what you're, consuming all the time so instead of watching like six youtube videos of like people doing funny things like running into the wall or falling off the skateboard like watch four of them and then watch like a quick you know what i mean like just a little bit of of thinking time and and don't do it with stuff that you find boring look if you find it boring then skip it to something else Uh uh-huh well it's it's like it's like thinking of your diet you know your food diet it's like well you can make smarter choices but choose the ones that taste delicious to you right you know you don't have to eat things you don't like 
you know, I know that I should eat vegetables and I like vegetables, but there's no way I would ever in my entire life eat cauliflower. <laughs> it's disgusting, you know, and it's actually in my bio there. And the reason why leaders don't eat cauliflower is because it's disgusting. Well, partially, you know, there's a whole story behind it, but like, you know, the, the primary reason is it's disgusting and I'm not, uh, you know, back and forth about it. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I was very struck, actually, that your first blog of the year, you really sort of took on kind of our, our media consumption, if you will, in, in a larger context of talking about non-obvious thinkers are not afraid of BS. Yeah. We see it all the time. We've learned to be strategically skeptical. And I appreciated this. You said in the new year, the world needs more of us to have this mindset. So strategically skeptical is something you could bring to that enriched diet of brainful media, but to any media, right? Yeah, and and, and look, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to preach that everybody should try and turn into an academic overnight, but what bothers me is something that I see happening more and more frequently, which is people who I think are intelligent. I mean, they're not stupid people. They're well-educated people. They're they're people who've achieved things in their life and been self-starters and done amazing things. But when it comes to the media that they consume, they believe the first thing they see or they yeah. believe the first thing they read. And they're not skeptical about it, not skeptical in a jaded way, but skeptical in a way. Could that be true? Like, mm-hmm. I'll give you a perfect example, right? And I wrote about this. Netflix released a list that said the most popular streaming shows of the year, Okay. And they released this list in late December of 2019. Mm -hmm. And a couple of shows on that list were Netflix shows that had just been released a week earlier. (laughs) So how could a show released a week earlier that most people haven't even seen yet from the most popular streamed shows of the entire year? Does that make sense? Or is it Netflix creating a list of most popular streamed shows that includes their own own shows on it? Right. Right. So I think that people just need to put inject a little bit of logic into this to say, look, this stuff I'm hearing, does that even make sense? Like, is that logical as a conclusion based on everything that I know out there? Well, and one of the things that you that you talk about around your book is that the value of non-obvious thinking and using it to sort of look forward that it has this valuable side effect of making you more curious, observant, and giving you more understanding of the world around you. So there's a there's a compounding effect here, right? You're curious, you become more curious. You're observant, you become more observant. That makes it easier to be strategically skeptical. So it's like a muscle, right? I mean, yeah, you need it to really build it practice. Really is. I mean, I, I think that that it's uh, it's empowering. Well, what it demonstrates to you is that you are capable of forming your own opinion mm-hmm. of things that you may not feel like you're an expert on, which is a pretty big deal because I think for a lot of people, they might look at something, whether it's politics or some industry topic or something technical, and say, look, I don't know anything about that. I'm not an expert. So I'll just listen to the people that I think are experts. And therefore, you know, that's what a smart person would do, right? They would listen to an expert and, and just trust that expert. Right. The problem is that a lot of times those experts, A, their, their perspective is, is delivered in a out-of-context mm-hmm. way, so we don't get the full picture. And the other thing is, look, if I'm the CEO of a company that makes drones and I declare 2020 the year of drones, you know, <laughs> that's an interest in that happening, right? 
Right. There's some bias right. involved there. And not because I'm an evil person, but like, look, I have a company that sells drones. Like, of course, I'm going to talk about that. Like, what else would I talk about? Right. But we have to be a little bit more skeptical about those types of things and say, wait, you know, what is the bias that the person who's bringing that out is actually saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you about how you define curiosity. I went back and I was reading some of your older work, and I came across actually a really interesting piece that you wrote in 2012 about curiosity. And you were saying that curiosity has shifted from a need to learn into a need for stimulation. And I wonder if you still think of curiosity that way or sort of how you – like what's your working definition when you say be curious? What are you asking people to do or be? Uh. You know, that's an interesting one. I'm sure I've written about it many times, so it's just interesting how your spec falls. I mean, I think my latest description would be something that I shared in the book, which is that being curious means that you approach unfamiliar situations with a sense of wonder. Yeah. And I like that phrasing of it, because what it says is you're not daunted or panicking when you're in an unfamiliar situation. Mm-hmm. You're saying, mm-hmm. oh, hmm. what could I get from this that I haven't gotten before? What could be new about this? When you're seeking simulation, it's like you're actively going and looking for something that you know you're interested in, mm-hmm. which is a little different than being open to hearing about something you didn't think you were interested in at all. Mm-hmm. But, but, mm-hmm. Right? I mean, what I think that approaching things with a sense of wonder does is it, it opens you up to more serendipity. Whereas if you're just looking for stimulation, you're much more likely to just look at the stuff that you already know you like. So that's an interesting segue to another part of your non-obvious thinking and, and, the, and the most recent book on this intersection thinking, which is kind of about the same thing of sort of connecting dots and wandering around with a sense of serendipity and open-mindedness. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the elements of intersection thinking, because again, these struck me as great curiosity practices right here. Yeah, I think that that we're living in a world of of intersection thinking and Mm -hmm. really intersection stories. I mean, the lines that used to exist between various industries are totally getting broken down. I mean, you have furniture companies like West Elm that are opening up uh, hotel showrooms. You've mm-hmm. uh, Crayola that is known for crayons making a makeup line. You've got Taco Bell even opened a hotel, right? You've got an energy drink Red Bull sponsoring stratospheric falls by by uh, you know aviators, right? Uh-huh. Putting spectacles around that. All of these things that used to be like different verticals. Uh, are now starting to to blur together. And I think that what that requires of us is the ability to think more in terms of what are the intersections and Mm -hmm. what are the the differences. Focus on the similarities, not on the differences. And the people who are able to do that are the ones that take ideas from outside their industry, from outside the world that they live in, and use them to lap their competition. Use them, uh-huh. out. Use them to actually win, whether you're a business owner who's got your own business or you're working for a company that's trying to stand out against the competition. If you're just doing the same things, if you're following the best practice in your industry, right, which everybody uh, is, is 
sort of hardwired to do. I mean, anybody who's in the financial services industry, they'll go to financial services conferences to learn, right? A person in the financial services industry probably wouldn't go to CES, which is happening this year uh, in Las Vegas. But if they did, they'd see all sorts of interesting technology that's coming out and maybe ways of applying that to their industry. So those are those two, those next two elements in intersection thinking, right, about embracing serendipitous ideas and wandering into the unfamiliar, like go to a conference about stuff you don't know anything about. Yeah. And, you know, I'm lucky because I get invited to, to, you know, between 40 and 50 events a year. And most of them are in industry yeah. where I, I don't know all that much. I mean, I remember last year I did an event for a for the jewelry industry. And that was a really interesting one because now I was going into the world of a jeweler and saying, you know, what do people care about and how do they actually sell? And I actually went to, to prepare for the talk, I went to a sales training locally here in the in the Tyson's Corner area, actually, where a jeweler manufacturer was giving sales training to the people who sell jewelry on the floor. Uh-huh. Here's how to actually sell this product to the oh, customers and here's what they might relate to. And so getting that inside look from a sales process, I mean, who would go through jewelry sales training. It, like That's not my industry. Like I've never done that. Probably will never do that. But now I have this insight from spending an hour and a half going through this training as if I were a jewelry salesperson, right? Yeah. Uh, multiply that by 40 different events and in different industries across the year, and you can kind of see where I get a lot of this input. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So the last one on the intersection thinking is be persuadable. Talk about that. That is quite difficult for any of us. And it's not because we're bad people, but we know what we know. Mm -hmm. As we get older, we become more certain of what we know. And that, in a nutshell, I think describes a lot of the problem that we have in our country today. (laughs) People who are unwilling to consider that someone who doesn't agree with them might also have a point. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being persuadable to me means forcing yourself to have those those challenges and to rethink what you might what you might know and not in an angry debate way, uh, because that rarely changes people's minds. Uh, but in a why do you think what you think, and what can I understand about you as a result of that? Yeah, interesting. So, do you have? A strategy or two to share on how to be more persuadable? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things that I do, uh, which is frustrating for me at times, is for the last three years, I've been subscribed to get political emails from both camps. Uh-huh. So the same things that are happening uh, in politics, and I, you know, I live in the D.C. area. A lot of, you know, everybody, we're kind of dealing with this on a constant basis, maybe more than people in other countries, right? Uh, other regions of the country, sorry. But the sense that I can get that same message and see what the messaging is to everyone. Like that's one way because Mm -hmm. now I start to get that picture. The other way I think to, to continue to be persuadable is to try and choose to read things that are not meant for you intentionally. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. And uh, and magazines are one way that I do that. And you mentioned that earlier as one of my tips. But a lot of times when people are listening to a talk, one of the big things they take away from that is at, at the airport on their way home, I want them to buy a magazine that's totally not for them. So for me, for example, uh-huh. I might buy Teen Vogue magazine back when it was print. But that's for 16-year-old 
right? There's no reason I should be reading that. But when I do, I see celebrities I've never heard of. I see products that I don't even understand. <laughs> and I see language that, that is unfamiliar. Yeah, yeah. Because of that, I take a step outside of myself and I get to appreciate someone else's point of view. And that has become almost impossible to do online. There's a reason why I suggest people do it with a print magazine, because the magazine that you buy is the same one that that person who that's, who it's targeted to buys. Whereas online, with all the fees and the personalization and all of that stuff, like, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that, like, if you, uh, if Lynn, if you and I search for the same thing on Google, we would see different results. Right. And like, that surprises a lot of people. They're like, wait, so the results aren't even the same? And they're not. Not at all. Not at all. So before the time gets away from us, I do want to invite you into some intersection thinking with my big jar of wannabe analogies. Are you game for of this? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I have pulled out um, three little slips of paper here, and we're each going to make an analogy to what's on the slip. So yours is pasta. How is curiosity like pasta? And mine is, oh gosh, jealousy. How is curiosity like jealousy? You want to go or you want me to go ahead? Um, yeah, I can go. Okay. Okay. How is curiosity like pasta? Uh, curiosity is like pasta because there are many things that you can fill it with. Mm. Some are pretty disgusting. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> I'm never going to eat ravioli the same way. Lovely. Okay. Ravioli, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, jealousy. How is curiosity like jealousy? Well, I, you know, jealousy, kind of like curiosity, can um, can sort of take hold of you and and not let you not let you sleep, not let you focus on anything else. It can be a kind of a burning. Uh, sensation. Um, curiosity, I think of as kind of more pleasant than jealousy, but I think it has that kind of overwhelming or can have that overwhelming quality about it. So that's how curiosity is like jealousy. And audience, yours is fish. How is curiosity like a fish? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. How is curiosity like a fish? Well, Rohit, thank you so much for this. And if people want to learn more, where can they find you? So uh, my personal site is just uh, rohitbargava.com, R-O-H-I-T-B-H-A-R-G-A-V-A. Or if they want to find out about the book and get a free excerpt, uh, they can do that at nonobvious.com slash megatrends, all one word. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for this and have fun with the launch. I will. Thank you. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can hear all my previous shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on Twitter at Choose number two, letter B, Curious. Don't forget to send us your fish analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Rohit Bhargavav, for joining me in the midst of his juggernaut media tour and book release. And special thanks to Heather Ingram for having her connectivity radar up and making the introduction. What a gift to start the new year. Our theme music is thanks to Sean Ballack, and this is Turning on the Lights by Speakeasy at Blue Dot Sessions. So am I too focused on similarities? 
embrace serendipitous ideas, wander into the unfamiliar, and be persuadable. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.